Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups. And my special guest today is Jeremiah Lowen. Jeremiah, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. I, uh, I've been doing this podcast for about four years, and I have to confess, I probably feel as unprepared to talk about a business as any business founder that I've ever interviewed on the podcast. I've done one interview a week you know, for four years, but I am, I, I've looked, I've watched interviews. I have looked at your website. I am still at a loss to really wrap my, my mind around that, but we'll get to that in a minute. I really want you to just to share a little bit about yourself with the audience. Like if you and I were at a networking event, how would you introduce yourself to me? Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, it'll be interesting. I, I don't think we even need to talk about our business to have an interesting conversation here. I think building a business, no matter what it does, no matter, sure. you know, who its customer is, it's, it's a challenge and it's a hey, fun you're one. You're not going to um, get off the hook, though. You've got to explain this to me in the elevator <laughs> we'll, somewhere. We'll, we'll still do our best. Don't worry. We'll still do our <laughs> best. Right. Um, as, as for myself, I'm, I'm Jeremiah Lowen. I'm, I'm the CEO of, of a company called, called Prefect. My background is uh, in, a, in a pretty diverse set of, of environments, actually, but most of my career I've spent in finance, I've spent in risk management, I think I've identified as a data scientist for most of that. Um, I love statistics, and more than that, I love using statistics to understand how things behave, and more than that, I love understanding how things misbehave, uh, which is how I found my way into risk management. The idea that... Um, a portfolio of stocks can collapse. Um, uh, well, I always go to the insurance metaphor and it's always such a sad one, but a car can crash, a building can catch on fire. These, these events that are profoundly impactful on people, uh, but so much of the work that we do and the tools that we have, they very explicitly ignore these outlier events. They're difficult mm. to predict. They're difficult yep. to model, but they are so, so, so important. And uh, my career for however long it's been now has all been different cuts at that, different slices of that um, of that idea uh, in different industries with different approaches, but always with that same theme. And, and today, if when we when we get into it, our company does that for code. Now we help people protect against failures in their in their code risk management for code. So I want to encourage our listeners. If you're listening, if you're listening to this on a on a just audio, I want you to go to our YouTube channel and turn this interview on because I'm telling you, this will be the most animated data nerd you have ever met in your life. That uh, you know, he's he's not the prototypical. I want to be you know locked in a cubicle and and just have my four monitors of spreadsheets in front of me. So, I mean, that's Dear this God, is not no. something that somebody just wakes up overnight and says, "Hey, this is what I want to do." So. Kind of walk us through that journey of, you know, hey, did some education, got out, got my first job, you know, was it in the finance space, was private equity, where, where exactly did you start? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not at all ashamed to say I really do just love this stuff. And it's stuff that a lot of people don't love or think is boring. Um, I... I, gosh, what, what was it? It was, it was an internship that I got with, with a hedge fund and I was in a risk management role. And I didn't really know anything about that, but I remember looking around and noticing that all the folks that I was working with had these advanced degrees in statistics. And I went back to school and uh, 
decided I wanted to study this, right? I wanted to, to learn about what, the, it, it's such a silly reason as I'm saying it out loud, right? It, I, I just thought it was interesting. I thought it was a correlate for some cool things that I thought these people were doing and able to achieve in their careers, but I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I, I don't know. It's such a silly reason to make a decision like that that has impacted my life so profoundly, but, but there we are. And I was a sophomore. I was starting to take a stats 101 class and my father happened to send me a book that he thought I might want to read. And it was called The Misbehavior of, of Markets. Um, and it's, uh, there's, there's that word again that has profoundly impacted me. Uh, it's by Benoit Mandelbrot, who's a very, very, very famous mathematician and sort of the originator of uh, fractal and fractal theory, which is just phenomenally interesting. Well, it turns out he had a real interest in how markets behave, stock markets, commodity markets, any, any asset market. It turned out that they behaved, or rather that they misbehaved. Uh, very differently than, than you know you might read in a textbook. And it just so happened that I actually was reading about this in the textbook. I was in a Stats 101 class learning yep. about bell curves and normal mm -hmm. distributions. And my professor uh, told us, her, her rookie students, she said, the stock market is a great example of a normal distribution if you plot the returns. And I you know went back to my dorm and basically that night I cracked open this book and read the exact opposite. And it was one of the first times in my life that I was confronted with this like very clearly divergent information, but perhaps more importantly, I decided to actually do something about it. I was, I was confused, right? Yep. And that, that moment, um, oh, 20 years ago now, um, was what sort of set me down, down this path. I went to speak with this professor. I asked her, what's going on here? I have these two very different uh, claims. I don't know how to reconcile them. She told me something that I've never forgotten. She said, uh, stock returns are normal enough for a stats 101 class. And it was sort of my first encounter with the idea that no model is actually perfect. Um, no, mm. We have to make a decision at some point about what degree of uncertainty we're willing to accept. When have we gotten close enough to the approximation of the truth? Right. It's still useful. And, um, and, and you may know there's a, there's a very famous quote by a statistician named George Box where he says, all models are useful. Oh, excuse me, he says, no models are, are useful. What did he say? Shoot, now I've forgotten it. All models are wrong, but some are mm. useful, is, is the quote. <laughs> and, uh, and so there I was, I'm a sophomore in college. I get put down this, this path of discovering that there's something to learn here. And I, I just threw myself into it. I became obsessed with this problem. And over the next three years, I would write, I, I, would, I would pursue my master's in statistics. I would write my thesis on... Uh, a variant of this problem. And then I would take that experience back into the finance world. I joined a large hedge fund called King Street Capital. I became their first dedicated risk employee in, in 2007 and built out a, a, a risk effort immediately before, uh, of course, in 2008, that became a critical, critical say, endeavor. Wow, yeah, what timing. Yeah, and, and listen, I take no credit for that timing. That was a lot of people <laughs> who were a lot smarter than me who put me in that role. But as a consequence of it, I got to level up really fast. And mm -hmm. I got this appreciation for if you put someone who is who's sufficiently motivated into yep. a position, which I, I don't know, I think every day, how could how could they put me in that in that position, but they put a lot of faith in me, they put enormous trust in me. Uh, and my team and I have forever been grateful for that because it created so many opportunities for me um, thereafter, right. uh, just, just absorbing all that experience in such a, in such a compressed time. And, and in that time, I gained this appreciation that I, that I mentioned earlier, that there is a way for us to discuss and prepare and account for these events that are inherently unpredictable and unknowable. And throughout the rest of my career, that would become this just 
constant, constant echo. Um, sometimes I was I was writing software to achieve this. Other times I was, you know, very qualitatively speaking about it or guiding folks to it. I've now started a company, which is an incredible exercise in sort of risk uh, assessment and and risk management. But but always just this core motivation that's driven me for so long. I I want to I want to go back to something you said just a second ago because the the kind of the umbrella. That, that envelops everything that we do on Rising Tide is, is around kind of founders and their stories and, and the lessons learned and things like that. So it was interesting. You said something about, uh, you know, they kind of took a chance on this, this person that probably had more passion than, than experience or more passion than gifting or whatever you want to, however you want to weigh those two things. What has been your experience in hiring? You know, when you look at those two things, what is, I mean, a, I know Steve Jobs, you know, has a has an interesting take on that, and and many other, you know, founders that have, have kind of had these uni- ridden these unicorns have have a real unique kind of take on that. What have you found to be true when looking for talent? That's a fabulous question. Um, I think so. I have an answer which I'll share with you in a moment, but I think any answer to that question, I or I would imagine any answer to that question from any founders, very. Uh, very much conditional on the culture of the company mm-hmm. they built. So we've built a culture. Um, I just came from an interview, as a matter of fact, and something I try to say in every interview, we built an amazing culture. We have a great place to work, but it's not a great place to work for everyone. It's a great place right. to work for the sort of the prototype that fits into yep. it. And what I found is if we can, if we can identify people who are enthusiastic, we can almost stop there. Mm-hmm. I think enthusiasm, if I had to pick one one quality is so, so, so important for a startup because not every day is a great day. Mm-hmm. And that enthusiasm, more often than not, will carry someone through that day and it'll earn them, if you will, the opportunity to fight again and the opportunity to wake up and be reinvigorated. I haven't had a great day every single day of building this company. I'm a, I look, I'm a positive person. I'm an optimistic <laughs> person, maybe too much. But not every day is a great day. But sure. being able to wake up and just feel like I want to work on this is probably the most valuable um, thing we could look for. I used to say to people in an interview, I'd say, you know, I really wish someone would just hit the table back when we did interviews in person, of course, like just hit the table and tell me why this company will fail without you. I'll hire you on the spot if you do that. And today, one person who just started a prefect a week ago, one person has actually done that. Um, hey, and I think it's now the listeners that have heard you say that I, yeah, and, I'm, and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm dead serious. If someone did that, I would hire them on the spot because, because having that degree of, oh my God, this has to be, we have to mm-hmm. do this makes it so easy to take a chance on somebody. Yeah. Um, so, so much of our, of our culture that we've developed at the company is about not making the most precise right decision at any moment. I think that that's a, a sort of a fool's errand a lot of time. Where you're kidding yourself if you can claim that you know to the decimal point that something is the right decision. Right. But it's often really easy to learn when you've made a bad decision. And so we've developed a decision-making culture which embraces that and says, listen, our job is to eliminate a whole lot of bad decisions and try to make a top decile decision. I don't really care if it's the best possible one. And the way we get there is by iterating fast and, and iterating, meaning discovering that we yep. are not satisfied. And so for someone to hit the table and say that, what they are sort of doing through that lens is they're making it very, very, very easy to say yes. They're, they're just setting, they're, they're mm-hmm. daring themselves to succeed much more than right. they're daring me to hire them. Um, and by being very clear on the expectations and what we're sort of welcoming someone into, 
Like if, if you're the sort of person who wants to prove that and wants to like, well, let's go, what are we waiting for? Yep. Let's, let's go, let's go find check. out what's on the side. They now have yeah, to cash but, it. You know, they, they, exactly, they've read the check, exactly. they've got to cash. Because, you know, you can say, hey, I can hire somebody in a month from, from now to, to fill the role that, that I've hired you to if you're if you're actually kind of the emperor has no clothes here. So um, yeah, that is, that's really an interesting take. That's exactly right. And and I think the way you even put that, I think speaks to it more. It's, I do love taking a bet on somebody. I love the idea that we could find someone who's got this passion, this enthusiasm and and yeah, we're all skill set. Like we have a, we have a pretty high performance crew that we, and and we have high expectations and we have high standards and we work pretty hard. and, and I love to be able to take a bet on someone who I think is going to thrive in that. But more than that, what we're looking for is someone's got to take a bet on themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what it is, whether you're starting the company or joining the company. When it's a startup, you are betting on yourself. You are betting that you can do more in this environment than any one person deserves to be able to do. And the, the way you'll do that is by cooperating with your colleagues, of course, to build yourself up and, yep. and achieve something larger than life. But that is, that's what I think we're trying to get at is like, are you, are you going to bet on yourself? It, it's relatively easy to assess if someone has the, the technical ability or, or whatever the skill set is that will help them succeed in this role. I'm not going to sit here and interview someone and decide if they're, you know, exactly what, where they should come into the organization and what mm-hmm. impact they're going to have. I want to make that decision as easy as possible. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that is just to be convinced that this person is going to wake up and bet on themselves all day long. All right, yeah. well, conditional. What else I can learn? This is this is that's easy to say yes to. That's one thing that that kind of a mini light bulb moment I had while you were you were speaking that that and I you know I told you in the show notes we're gonna have I I reserve the right to chase the proverbial rabbit here, but uh, one thing that you said about you know that that person in the interview and I don't want to beat this dead horse too much, but the idea that they said this company will fail without me, it's they exhibited the value of of the company not failing above their job or above the anything else. I mean, it's like, you know, you just jumped in the boat with me. If I'm the founder, if I'm you know the VP of marketing or sales or whatever it is, and I'm hiring, I just feel like, you know, you just kind of grabbed me by the arm here and said, let's go, you know, you, let's, let's you run know into that I'm- fire together. 100%. And I actually, I, I didn't even choose my words so carefully there, but I, I think I would always frame that as this company will fail without me, not this company needs me to succeed. That's almost yep. never true. Um, yep. No company needs any one person to succeed. I think that there's no place for that attitude actually in a startup. Mm-hmm. A startup is about learning how wrong you are and correcting yep. it, not yep. about believing that you are successful. But yeah, this this jumping in the boat and saying like, here's what the problem is and here's how I can get us through it is so important. You know, it's another thing I, I do love. Um, I hate when investors do this and I love it when um, <laughs> prospective employees do this is when they say we in the interview. Yeah. It's this tiny, tiny little thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're going to do this. Here's Even if it's a Freudian slip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, well, I don't mean we need to be presumptuous here, but we can do this. That's right. It's, it's, we're already in the boat. Like you said, we're already working on this together. We're already exploring how this is going to be. And um I mean, look, it's not a, it's not like I'm going to come out of the interview and say like, oh, this person said we instead of you. Uh, therefore, <laughs> They're French. Uh, they said we. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's not like the decision is, is made on that basis, but it's, it's impactful. It gives insight into how they, mm-hmm. how they speak about where their minds, where their mindset is you know how how they're thinking about this opportunity and 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 it speaks to their enthusiasm for the opportunity if that's that is amazing and yeah 
no, nothing we just discussed, except for the pounding the table, I'll stand by that. And anyone who's listening, you come interview with me, you hit the table, I'll hire you on the spot, I promise. But not, I mean that. None of this points to an, an action item, right? It's not no. like you do these things and you must be amazing. There's building a company is hard. And one of the most important things I think that we're actually looking for when we interview somebody is not how amazing they're going to be, but do they really want to work at a startup? Do they really understand mm -hmm. what it is to work at a startup? Now, today, you know, we're about to onboard our, I think our 72nd employee, but less than two years ago, I was onboarding employee 18. Mm -hmm. And while that feels like an extraordinary difference. In my mind, we remain a small company. There's a lot to be done here that, that one might take for granted in a larger organization. Are you the sort of person who signs up to participate in the building of the company, which we are very much still doing? Yeah. It's something we really, really are trying to, to discern. And if you're not, it's not that we don't like you. It's not that you're going to not be good. It's just, you're not going to like being here. Mm. And we don't want someone here who's not going to enjoy their work. Right. Um, right. I mean, they will infect the culture, you know, and adversely. It, and, it, and it will affect the culture when you yeah. when you have a group of people who are really, really, really committed to building something and upholding a culture that they think is positive. Any any infection into that can be really disastrous. And we have to um, I don't want to say guard it because that, that, that sounds too proactive. Um, rather, we, we just want to make sure that everyone finds their own way to sort of participate and, and proactively uphold it. You know, one thing that I noticed that uh, you, you're going to think that's that's an odd thing for you to kind of kind of pick up on but so as i was looking at your website before our our chat today i looked at your team and just i kind of just started going down through the photos of just the different people that you had you know in different locations and different jobs on your team and the one thing i noticed was that are so many websites when they're they're trying to be cool they've either everybody's sitting in a, in a starbucks or everybody's wearing a suit you know is there is there What's the in between there? And your your employees seemed so comfortable in their photos. They seemed, you know, it was not like you know I was trying. I'm trying to create an image, or I'm trying to, you know, portray anything other than you know this is who I am. I'm bought into this. I'm in the boat. You know, we're moving forward and we're building something cool here. And so. Uh that just comes through in those images. I think that's, I, honestly, I wish I could, I wish I or the company, I guess, could take credit for what you just said. But I, I think the truth is, as a, as a newly remote company, we solicit those, those headshots from our team with no specific ask, at least not at this time. And I think what you're, um, I think what you're observing is just a set of candid portraits that people are proud to have, and they show happy people and they show yep. engaged people for, for that reason. Um, I think that says more about my team than my company, to be honest with you. But it, it's a reflection of culture. It's a reflection well, of what you've created that says, this is, this is who we're looking for. And how do you, how do you, how do they portray that in their own photos? And, and there's, there's a really important extension there, which is, I, I remember once upon a time, there were no photos on the website and mm -hmm. I'll tell you why because I think there were three or four of us and I didn't want people to know how small a company it was. And a good friend of mine- four or five residents and nobody else. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, a, and a good friend of mine who has been on this journey before, he said to me, nobody wants to buy something from someone without a face. 
They want to know who they're dealing with. And the smaller the company is, the more they want to know who they're dealing mm. with. Yep. Give them a smile was basically what he said. Yep. And so we said, yeah, we're going to show the team. And now, you know, you go to that, there's 72 people now on that, on that page. And, um, and uh, maybe some of them are smiling, maybe they're not, but I, but I think, uh, or at least I hope, I genuinely hope all of them are very happy to be in their roles. And well, I don't know the that they were necessarily they smiling. I mean, that it just, there was just a comfortability in the photos that said, you know, it, it's not like, you know, HR called me and told me to take a photo against a white wall, you know, that type yep. of thing. So, and we've or, seen that, we've seen that. Yeah, it's it's funny. It would never even occur to me to, <laughs> to have us do that. But yeah, I think I think you're right. It probably is in, in a sense reflective of the culture that we've, that we've built. I, I think, look, the hardest thing that we do as far as culture is we, we have, uh, we, we describe it as a positive high-performance culture. Those are not two, fra- well, phrases that go next to each other a lot. Um, and my hope is, uh, and I and I strongly believe that if you spoke to my team, forget me, you would hear that echoed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 different than a work hard, play hard culture, which is which is one approach. It's different than a like just high performance culture where we work all the time. It's a positive place of people who really enjoy the work that they're doing. And that feels, even saying this, feels like a very pithy statement. What does it mean you enjoy your work? There's an entire class of people who probably hate their work. And like, well, what does that even mean? Um, one of the things that I ask every single person who interviews with a company, and I interview every single person who joins the company, um, one of the things that I discuss with them is the idea that I think that the prototypical person who succeeds in our culture is someone who views themselves as a craftsperson. And what I mean by that is someone who has a skill set that they are intrinsically motivated to advance. And if they weren't working here at Prefect, they'd be advancing that skill set, maybe in a different industry, maybe in a different role, but that skill set. And when you have folks like that who are just intrinsically, you know, they have this great skill set, they just are looking for ways to exercise it. And as a company, now we can frame everything as sort of a challenge, uh, uh, a way to, to use that skill set for impact, a way to coordinate with your colleagues. Um, really amazing things happen because that takes care of the high performance. You don't mm-hmm. have to ask anybody to do anything because everyone wants to advance that skill set. It's, it's um, you know, I think I think a lot the sign of having an A player is you're telling them you're working too much. You're like, why are you like, chill out? You're, yep. you're trying to boil the ocean here. Um, that's in a funny way. That's a really wonderful thing. To say to somebody because it's a recognition of the fact that this person is trying to be in a million places at once it's just not mm-hmm. feasible right um and helping someone really hone that is, is super exciting to me uh uh not because i myself know how they should do that i think that's the beauty of building a company with great people is they're they're much better in their role than i would ever be but perhaps with some perspective i can help them take that burning energy and focus it to a place of maximum impact by virtue of having a, a slightly you know uh, more bird's eye view of everything that's going on. At the right. And I, I think from a health health perspective, a mental health perspective, it's probably good to, uh, you know, we, we sometimes we get myopic, you know, in, in navel gazing and we, we don't see the things that are right kind of in front of yeah. us and the things that are surrounding us. And, and maybe even the way we may be reacting in meetings or, or whatever, this does the, the whole thing, Hey, you're kind of, this isn't really normal, you know, for, for the, the way totally that I know right. you. So you're totally right. And I think the move to work from home and, and, and fully remote has made it possible to take advantage of that in, a, in an antagonistic way. Um, you know, we, 
there's there's a, a thing that we say, which I, I've discovered is almost a litmus test. Um, we don't operate on a clock at Prefect. You don't clock in in the morning, you don't clock out at night. We just we just operate. And it's about output, not hours, right? right. Um, I've learned that for a lot of people, that is code for the sort of place where you work 24 seven mm. and it's insane. I don't think with the exception of a few critical product launches in a database migration, I've ever asked a team to work over a weekend or late mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, what we mean by not working on a clock is my life doesn't operate on a clock. Yep. So my team knows 2.30 to 3, I'm in the school pickup line, probably can't mm -hmm. reach me. Six o'clock, bedtimes, bath times. You and I were just talking about, I got a five-year-old and a three-year-old running through the hall right now. Um, your life isn't on a clock. Mm -hmm. Putting work on a clock actually makes that balance more difficult, not less difficult, if you can be so lucky to be in a culture that can sort of amorphously um, just focus on the output. I really don't care if someone is clocking in. I don't care about FaceTime. I don't care about any of these things. I just want to see that someone is advancing and having that impact. And then what we can agree on is we can agree that there are certain standards that we want to abide by by a company. So we, we ask folks to be available. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think, we, I think our, our phrasing is we ask, we want there to be a reasonable assumption by someone's colleagues that they can reach you during work, you know, classic business hours. Right. Re reasonable. Right. If you got something to do, go do it. But trying to, trying to get our work to align with the fact that we know we're remote. We know we're across many, many time zones. Mm -hmm. We know that we're all working towards the same goal and we trust that we're in a high performance environment, which means I don't really worry about what someone's doing. I don't, why should I worry? We're worrying about someone would be probably the worst use of my time. As a matter of fact, I trust in my team. And regardless of the time they put in, I mean, if the work's not getting done, if, if the output is not there, I mean, I don't care if you're working 40 hours a week or 14, you know, we've got a problem, you know, Houston, we've got we a have problem. a problem. So we've got we, a problem. how do we resolve that? It's not by making you work five more hours a week, you know? So. No, Exactly. And, and that trust goes both ways. I hope that I hope that every member of the team trusts that as a team, we set our objectives in an achievable way. They're ambitious. We, yeah. we I said earlier, we do more than any person deserves to do because we try to compound as a company and take advantage of that. But our, our objectives are ambitious, but they're achievable. They're not mm -hmm. designed to harm people. Uh, if I want to have a company, and I do, that's around many years from now, then I need to make sure that there's a path for anyone on my team who chooses to to stay with a company for that long. Yeah. And um, that means building a real uh, trust, a real relationship. And that's where the positive comes into the high performance. It's not enough just to work hard. Right. Uh, we got we to gotta, we gotta like it. <laughs> we got we to enjoy it. I, I love that. And I think that, you know, I, I wanted you to, you know, have a platform where you could kind of share the story of Prefect and share how you got into that. But um, I've actually kind of stolen some of your time here, but just by by keep asking you questions about this, what's, we're having like a mini mini founders masterclass here on you know lessons learned and you know how do you how do you create a good culture? How do you create good expectations? And how do you build you know this this uh, corporate um, I guess objectives and corporate key metrics and all the things that you're trying to measure, you know, truly based on output you know, maybe it's project-based type thing versus time-bound. And um, I, I think that is, that's where we're all moving anyway. I mean, I think every successful company out there, I think has some elements of this, you know, kind of built into its, its ethos or its DNA. And I, I would love to hear just, you know, real briefly, just kind of the, just the founding, I guess, reason and quick storyline of how Prefect started. Sure. Um, I think that 
I think that your your comments earlier about this this is an odd problem to discern they resonate with me. The problem that we solve is not um, necessarily a headline problem or an obvious problem. It is a subtle one. Uh, we named it. We gave it a name: negative engineering. And what I mean by that is. When you're engaged in, in data science or analytic pursuits, as, as I have been in, in much of my career, you frequently have to do things that are sort of necessary for your work uh, to make sure that it actually sort of makes it into the world. But they're not like the things you were paid to do, right? So I'm a statistician, I'm a data scientist, I love building models, but then I spend an extraordinary amount of my time like scheduling them to refresh mm -hmm. and uh, logging in to find out if they actually ran and making sure the database is, is populated. And, and this class of activities, which is again, necessary, but, but, but orthogonal to what I actually want to be working on. And you know, it's, it's a very hard thing to separate. Um, I, I became involved in a team that, that makes a, a, a very widely used and popular um, open source project uh, called Airflow that solves this problem uh, in a certain environment, which is called batch orchestration, so sort of regularly scheduled data uh, movement and, and scheduling. Um, and that was a lot of fun, and that solved sort of my, my basic needs in a data engineering sense. But again, I'm a data scientist. I live in this scale-out world. I love analyzing things. I do it a million times a day. I do it you know, a million different ways each time. Um, it's about exploration. It's about dynamicism. And the semantics of the tools that I worked with and developed, they didn't match that degree of scale and speed mm -hmm. and anything. Um, and so I began building what would become Prefect actually to take some of those semantics that I really liked about being able to govern work. Um, we, we spoke earlier about risk management and my, yep. my obsession with it. The number one thing that we were able to do with tools like a workflow orchestration platform, like what our software does is we're able to talk about failure in a real way. So for most people, when you run code and it fails, it fails, it crashes. It's very difficult to recover from that state. You, you, you know, turn it off and turn it back on again. That's sort of the classic response. A good workflow orchestrator lets you work with that failure as a real state of your application. It lets you take conditional action on failure. So instead of a failure taking down your system, taking down your model, taking down your computer, a failure becomes something that you can respond to in your application in a real way. You can, you know, if, if you're if you have a cluster spun up in the cloud somewhere and you're running some analytic on it, and the last thing you do in your script is you tear down the cluster so you don't end up with a huge build the next morning, but your script fails halfway through, your cluster will continue running. This is something that's actually happened to me many more times than, you know, than I care to admit. <laughs> In order to tear down that cluster, no matter whether it the script failed or not, requires some notion of accounting for that failure mm. and working it into your application in a real way. And anytime we deal with that, whether it's scheduling something to run at a certain time, trapping a failure, anytime we deal with the sort of meta structure of actually running this code and making sure it runs in the way it was intended, we're in this, what we call this negative engineering world in contrast to the positive engineering, the point of the application What I was hired to do. And so fundamentally, the software that we make is about delivering those negative engineering toolkits and frameworks. And again, I'm dancing around it because it gets boring fast, honestly. It depends I mean, on the audience, right? Keyword? I mean, would, Mitig would, if you had mitigation, to mitigation you know, can be, capture this. Mitigation can be a, a, a keyword. It can be really hard, though. If the thing that we're working against is that the internet goes out or a database fails or there's a network hiccup, our ability to actually actually mitigate it is is minor. 
Um, mm -hmm. In the same way that if you buy insurance on your house, that insurance will not prevent the house right. from burning down. Right. In fact, some might argue it will increase the probability because you'll be more careless, <laughs> um, which is a whole other thing. Or tempted to burn it but, down yourself. Or tempted, right, in a, in a fraudulent <laughs> matter, right, of course. Um, but what it will do is it will mean that in that adverse outcome, you will you will not, the strain that you've experienced, the stress that you experience, both in your time, your resources, your energy, it will be minimized. And our value prop comes in much the same way. We may not be able to actually mitigate an unfortunate circumstance that affects the code or the model or whatever you've put into right. the world. Um, but what we can do is we can make sure that your experience of dealing with it is as positive as, as possible. And that's why we use this sort of this insurance metaphor. Yeah. And so anyway, I'm, I'm way ahead of my story. Just to zip back, I needed to take these semantics, these, these tools for, for working with these types of failures, and I needed to extend them into my data science use case. And there wasn't a tool that could really do it at the scale that I required. So I built one for myself. There was no company, there was no product, there was no nothing, it's just a tool I needed. By coincidence, a few folks I worked with at other companies came to me with similar problems where they were trying to take these automation mm. um, primitives and bring them into a data science scale out, fast paced experimental world. And, and it just wasn't working, it just, it just couldn't be done. So I handed them this little prototype thing that I had built for myself. And they both came back. This is like by coincidence in the space of about a week in 2017. And they both came back and said, you know, if this was a product, we'd use it. And that was the moment when I got on the phone with a lot of people. I said, do you, do you have a problem like this? Do you have a problem like this? And at the time, I didn't have a vocabulary for describing this problem. I felt it. I actually didn't understand why more people didn't feel it. Mm. And I came to understand that there was, this, there was this split in the world of data scientists, which is how I principally identified, and data engineers, who at the time in particular were very, very much tasked with solving this type of problem. And both of them were relatively happy with their tools. But I, in the organization I happened to function in, was one person trying to fulfill both jobs. And that crossover from the analytic world to the production world, and then trying to recapture that and bring it back, that's where I felt all of this pain. And that's where I felt that there was no toolkit for me to just solve this problem. Something didn't run at 9 a.m. It seems like the most trivial thing in the world, but that had profound business consequences to my organization. And I didn't have a tool that sort of recognized that fact. This scheduling was true. Human Zapier, you know, you- <laughs> we're, That's not bad. We're, 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 I don't even want to say an enterprise Zapier because I think they have a great enterprise product. We're a Zapier for custom code, for analytic code, mm -hmm. for data science code. Um, our See, job is to help- Hey, I'm people. getting it slowly it's it's sinking in that's, you know that's pretty good well it's funny you know you and i are speaking as the sun is set now behind me you and i are speaking late in late in the evening and as i warned you uh i'm probably going to ramble about everything and <laughs> i think the, the best the best way that we describe it though is just this this need for insurance this need to have mm. confidence that things either ran as they were intended or that i'm going to know how they fail one or the other is, is acceptable to me but not neither yeah uh and yeah, enough people said that this was a problem they had, that they had no, no tool that, that solved it. And, and that, that was enough. We, we formed the company. I made my first hire, who's today's our CTO. He's phenomenal um, uh, fellow, Chris White. Uh, and uh, we got to work. We released an open source product. Um, uh, Cisco came along a couple months later, said that we love this open source thing. We assume there's a commercial version. We'd like to buy it. Uh, that... You said, give us a weekend, there will be. 
Yeah, that was a very, very interesting conversation. I mean, I, I can tell you that story. We, we, we didn't have a product to sell them, to be clear. We, we did have like a one month old, basically demo of a product. Um, that product would not be released for nine more months. That's how early in the development we were. But we went to demo it for them. Um, and, you know, we're all huddled in this room. We're giving them this demo, half the buttons. You know, if you click them, the whole back end will crash. And they loved it. And they're like, this solves a problem for us. And it was this enormous learning moment for us as a company, mm -hmm. because we thought that in order to sell this product, it had to have the perfect UI. And we had to teach people about this problem. And we had to, and it's a hard problem to, to talk about, as you just heard. It's, it's, if you haven't encountered this problem yourself, it's a little bit difficult to believe that it's a real problem. Yeah. But for this team who had encountered it, they didn't care if our UI worked. As, 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 as crazy as that is to say aloud, what they cared about was that we were solving a problem mm -hmm. that they had and that was extremely painful for them. And they became this incredible partner for us. They basically bought the software on the spot. They became this incredible partner for us as we actually brought it to market. And for us as a company, we started veering away from, it wasn't about perfection in everything we did. And you can hear the echoes of our culture here. It was about helping our customers avoid a painful problem above all else. And if we can remove that, if we can eliminate that problem, the productivity gains are, are incredible. When we when we um, survey our users and we ask them, how much time do you waste on this type of stuff? They say 90%, crazy numbers, 90% of the time mm. they spend on this. And so our realization was if we can make a dent in that, if we can take that down to 80%, the self-reported productivity of these people goes from 10% of their time to 20% of their time, doubles. And that is the operating leverage in the opportunity. Um, and that's why this isn't about delivering the be all end all perfect. We, we mitigated everything. And this is about, can we just make a, an impact on your ability to be productive in your positive engineering? And our customers just, they love our product for it because I think it delivers that in, in, in the real way. I think Cisco saw that though. I think, I think they knew that you hadn't cracked it, but they had faith that you were working on it and that you were going to figure this out and in a relatively that, short period of time. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes a fantastic partner. And we've been very fortunate to, to work with great partners like this because we acknowledge how unpleasant this problem is. The, the type of problem that we solve, nobody, nobody wants it, nobody seeks it, nobody even knows they have it. Nobody, certainly nobody's hired to solve this problem. It's a, it emerges in the, in the negative space between the things you think you understand, this lack of coverage, this lack of responsibility. And, uh, and we have this great tool that can fill that space for the right customer. And I'm sure uh, the vast majority of folks listening to this are thinking what we're talking about. And a very small number of them, I think, are thinking, well, shoot, I got to try this. This solves a problem I have. Well, I, we're going to have to have a version two so we can dive a little deeper in some of these things. And, and I, I, you're going to have to give me time to, to, to uh, study up, you know, so I can ask more intelligent questions. But I, as we wrap up today, I don't, don't want to cut into your, your uh, dad time tonight either, but um, I'd really appreciate you taking the time. But uh, just Give me one or two just nuggets of, you know, founder nuggets that you would say, man, if I'd have known this three years ago, four years ago, six years ago, whenever you you really started, uh, you know, prefect that what these would have been game changers. These just yeah. kind of bullet point, you know, answers that say this is two things that I that I think would be game changers. You know what we've had a there's a few things. One is my appreciation for corporate structure, let's call it that. Um, 
when we started the company, I believe that any form of structure was tantamount to bureaucracy. And I'm very, mm. very allergic to bureaucracy. And, um, and I quickly, quickly, quickly was sort of disabused of that, of that notion. Um, one of our secret weapons is that we have an extraordinarily large advisory board. And a mistake that I see a lot of startups make is they have these one or two very, very, very prominent high profile advisors who they pay an extraordinary amount, more than they're gonna pay any early employee who's, as we just discussed, is going to attach themselves to this business. Uh, and I always found that so interesting because you, you better hope that your problems line up with that person or those two people's expertise, or that's a yeah. very, very, very expensive insurance yeah. policy. And it's a frustrating and, thing too. And it can be very frustrating. Early in the and, stage, yeah. And especially if you have folks who like, you know, they're, they're spread out there and they do this in a whole bunch of companies. The idea that they're really going to have the context and whatever to, to help you is, is unlikely. I was very, very fortunate early in the business, maybe even before we even funded the business, to be introduced to Keith Kroc, who at the time was the CEO of DocuSign and uh, uh, came in very early in DocuSign's life and took it public. Prior to that, he had um, founded and scaled Ariba. Um, so like, if there's anyone who has a playbook for enterprise software, it, it's him. And the first thing he did is he invited me to attend a DocuSign advisory board meeting. And I watched 300 people. This was, this was immediately before they went public. I watched 300 people, a who's who, of like the global corporate elite, whatever you want to call it, in a room competing to sell each other DocuSign contracts in a completely gamified way and having a great time doing it and basically just lobbing up strategic ideas for DocuSign. And I was fascinated by this. I was like, what is this? What? And he said, this is what no one seems to want to do mm. is build a large group of motivated advisors who you ask very little of, but in the event that you can use that expertise, they are ready to go. And um, it was the first community building exercise we ever did where we haven't discussed this today, maybe, maybe in another time, we're an open source company. Um, we have created a really incredible community of thousands and thousands of users of our software who use it for free, no commercial pressure. It's not like a freemium model. It's just an open source piece of software. And we built this wonderful community. But the truth is the first community we ever built was our advisory community. And I, I think it is our not so secret weapon. And it's something that I advise every founder to see if they can do. And you start with folks you know, you start with your investors, you start with your friends who've just seen this movie before and you, you bring together a group of people who our official ask is once a year, can we ask you a question? And by the way, we're gonna invite you to two dinners. We're gonna treat you like an investor. We're gonna send you all of our swag. We're gonna, we're gonna give you a front row seat to the most exciting ride in town. Mm. And, and we just would really appreciate if you have one phone call with us a year. And you can build up a remarkable group of people. And now some of them, you know, the Mark Carlson, who, who's uh, one of Keith's business partners and built, you know, both Ariba and DocuSign, he's the CCO of DocuSign. He attends our weekly sales calls every single week to give our team guidance and, and lend his expertise. And it's, it's extraordinary of him. Um, so some of these advisors, they do choose to be extremely active participants in our mm -hmm. company and build that context and those relationships. Others don't, and that's okay. Um, they all play a role. Uh, you know, in proportion to, to what we're asking of them. And that has been sort of a secret weapon that I sort of advise everyone to see if they can find their own, own version of, do not put all your eggs in one advisor basket if you can avoid it. There's no reason to do that. Yeah.
Yeah, the, uh, I see value certainly in the diversity and and also just in the in the way you approach them. You know, just says we're not just going to sit here and read our re- quarterly report and and you just uh, speak into ways we need to do this. Like, you know, we have different color cups in the kitchen. You know, that type of thing. I've changed the carpet color. You know, this is. I mean, I love the kind of the role playing or the you know gamifying. I guess of, of what you're trying to do in this. Let's just throw up some crazy ideas about you know how to how to increase sales or whatever. Exactly. I I sense strongly. It's maybe it's easier for me to say this because I'm not in Silicon Valley, right? I live in D.C. and I have never been part of that startup culture. But it's it's extraordinary to me the degree to which a lot of these Silicon Valley startups like follow this playbook that I think is probably very additive to VCs. But I don't understand why a company would choose to operate this way. You know, for example, when we have a board meeting, we, we agreed very early on, if we ever discuss something in a board meeting that could have been sent by email, we, we've already failed. Mm. We failed to build context. And so I now talk with our board weekly. That's how plugged in they are to our business and how up-to-date they are. And it's not me parroting lines to them. It's a conversation. We're learning. We're making connections. We're steering the business. We're not going to, we're not going to steer a business by meeting once every three months for, you know, an hour or two. It's silly. Nope. Um, but it, but it's probably very respectful of the folks who, you know, join boards. And so, but that's not who, that's not who the board meeting is for. The board meeting is for the company. And there are so many places where I would encourage people to sort of say that the emperor has no clothes and, mm-hmm. and build a company that operates in service of that company, not in service of the portfolio that that company sits in. Both will succeed if you focus on the company, right. but only one will succeed for sure if you focus on that, on that portfolio that you're part of, um, or you, you operate in a way that's most conducive to that portfolio. And I just so strongly believe this. Um, and again, maybe that's because we operate outside of a Silicon Valley ethos, and it's a little easier for me to say that, uh, a little easier for me to find like-minded folks and bring them around the table. But the way so many companies operate, it's so cookie cutter, and most companies fail. And if, and if all you're going to do is make the same decisions as anyone else, why do you think your company is going to succeed? <laughs> no. what, what right do you have to think that you'll be above average if you make every average decision? Mm. Yeah, so, I, man, if, if you right. haven't listened to anything else, that, that last you know, minute and a half, hit, hit pause, rewind, listen to that last minute uh, again of just the, you know, the things to focus on that, that have the highest you know, return on the investment, you know, whether it's value, whether it's perspective, whether it's, you know, intentionality, whatever you, you, you know, however you want to want to kind of capture what you just said, but, you know, focusing on the right things will yield the right results. And Absolutely. I, mean, I love the way that you, you kind of close up. What a way to wrap us up today. I mean, um, man, is there, Jeremiah, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you just want to close us with real quick and then just kind of tell people where the best place to find you and find out more information about Prefect? Absolutely. Well, Kevin, first of all, I just appreciate the chance to come on and chat with you at the at the end of a long day. It's a it's a pleasure to just dive in on sort of how we've built the company and and uh, um, the focus that we've had on the culture and the people and really, really building this out. I have a, I have a five year old who just came into this room and is waving at me. So if I seem distracted, <laughs> that's what's going on there. <laughs> um, where can Time you to wrap it up, Dad? <laughs> exactly. That's that was, I literally just got played off as what just happened. I think it's um, where can you find us? Prefect.io. You can learn about our company. Um, uh, you can find me there. You can find me anywhere. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, Jay Lowen. Um, I pretty much just bake uh, terrible, terrible dad jokes at the expense of my investors on Twitter. So if that's your thing, <laughs> give me a follow. Um, and uh, and yeah, our, we have a we have a Slack. Um, we have we have this massive community that I mentioned. Uh, one of the places you can find us best is in our Slack or in our discourse. That's prefect.io/community. 
Um, and that is the best way to get a hold of me or my team or, or learn more about our product from, from other folks that are using it, uh, which is, of course, always the best way to learn. Jeremiah, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking time today and just sharing the story of Prefect and, and you know, your own philosophy and, and teaching other founders, you know, lessons that you've learned and, and giving them something to put in their own playbook and kind of emulate in their own, their own particular perspective and their own particular situations as, as they encounter that. But really just taking time and helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Jeremiah, have a great evening. Thank you, Kevin. You too. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.